Well, this morning I am not going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Instead, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Acts, the second chapter. As we are in, broadly speaking, an Easter season, this Lord's Day and next Lord's Day, we will be looking at Acts chapter 2, a sermon of the Apostle Peter that teaches us about our Lord's work on the cross and His glorious resurrection. And so this morning we turn to the beginning portion of that sermon, Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 23. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams." Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. And killed by the hands of lawless men. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us. That in your word we would see the glories of our Savior and King. Jesus Christ. We would know that there is none like Him. And that we would get a glimpse, O Lord, of Your wondrous plan that You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have effectuated for the salvation of sinners like us. This we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. The Easter season is a wonderful time of year. 
we look forward to it as it approaches. And the reason for that is that we are reminded of the finished work of our Savior, Jesus. But before we come to Easter, we have the cross. We must never forget the cost of our redemption. Jesus went to the cross, suffered, and died so that those who believe in him would have eternal life. This morning we will look at perhaps the greatest sermon ever recorded as Peter teaches us about the cross. He will teach us how the death of Christ is not an accident. It is not a surprise. It is the culmination of God's plan of redemption. The cross gives us hope because it shows us the lengths to which our God will go to bring us to himself. So this morning as we look at the first portion of Peter's Pentecost sermon, I'd like us to see three things. First, Peter shows us the Savior revealed. He shows us who Jesus is. And then second, Peter shows us God's sovereignty, particularly God's sovereignty in the work of redemption and the death of Christ. And then thirdly, Peter will encourage us to see light from darkness. That is, that light comes out of darkness, that God works wonders of grace even out of the wickedness of man's sin. The Savior revealed God's sovereignty and light from darkness. We're going to be focusing this morning on two verses, verses 22 to 23, but we needed all of that passage for the context so that we can see what Peter is doing here. Now remember that this is occurring during the Feast of Pentecost. That is a great feast in the year. There are several feasts during the Israelite year. We've seen the Feast of Booths in John and his Gospel. And then of course we know the Passover Feast, which is the period of time in which our Lord died upon the cross and rose again. And now here, 50 days after Passover, we have the great feast of Pentecost. So that reminds us that a good bit of time has passed since the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in that period of time, the disciples have been encouraged by Jesus, especially Peter. You may remember that Peter denied our Lord just as our Lord predicted and told him he would three times before the rooster crowed. And Peter was discouraged and depressed in that. He was off by himself. He didn't know what to do. And Jesus went and sought him out to restore him. Now, do not lose that detail. Peter did not seek Jesus to be forgiven. Peter did not seek out Jesus to be made whole. Jesus sought out Peter. Just as Jesus is the one who seeks us. He comes to us to restore us to fellowship with God. And so here at this Feast of Pentecost, there is a symbolic preaching of the gospel to all the world. Now what do I mean by that? The, the 
Disciples have not had the chance to go throughout all of the world. They have been given that command by our Lord. And they will go, starting in the book of Acts, and then continuing on through all of church history. Some of you are a testimony to that worldwide gospel. I'm a testimony to that. I didn't grow up in Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria. And so the gospel goes forward throughout all the world. But here we see it in a picture. As Jews from all over the world come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And through the marvelous work of the Spirit, as Peter preaches this gospel, they all understand and hear in their own language. God is showing us what he is doing and will do throughout all the world. And this is not just a sermon. This is the prototypical sermon. It has all the elements that apostolic preaching will follow. Peter tells us that the last days are here, that the consummation of history has come. Now, it can be hard for us to understand what Peter is saying when he talks about the last days, because we think to ourselves, that was 2,000 years ago. And who knows how many more centuries are going to go on. How could that be the last days? But you see, what we must do is look at history, not in terms of years or centuries, but in terms of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the focal point of all of history. All of history, before the appearance of Christ, looked forward to him. And all of history, since his living on earth and his sacrifice and resurrection looks backward to him. And so we are in now the last days, even as Peter and those Jews in Jerusalem were. We are dwelling in the days of Jesus reigning and establishing his kingdom. All of history now points back to Jesus. And this is all that witnessing is about. Revealing Jesus the Savior to those who don't know him. That's what we're called to do. Whether it's witnessing in far lands or in our schools or at work or to our friends or to our family. We reveal Jesus to those who do not know him. And Peter begins revealing Jesus where the Bible always begins. With God. Look with me at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. He calls upon all Israel to hear his words and his subject is very specific. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Now notice that Peter does not begin by revealing salvation. He's not revealing a way of life. He's not revealing a way to us to be happy or a way that we can be blessed. He starts by revealing a person, a Savior. And he does this in a way that highlights who Jesus is. That Jesus is a real historical person. He has a name and a place. Christianity is a factual faith. It is built on history. It is built on facts. 
If Jesus Christ did not exist and did not live, die, and rise again, then Christianity is worthless. You see, we believe in Jesus Christ because God has revealed him in history to us. And it's interesting the way Peter does this. He calls him Jesus of Nazareth. The Bible doesn't shy away even from plain and ordinary facts. Nazareth was a nothing town. As a matter of fact, Jesus' opponents used to refer to him as Jesus from Nazareth or of Nazareth as a way of denigrating him. You're not from Jerusalem. You're not from Rome. You're not from any place important. Who do you think you are? And you see here, Peter leans into that. He wants us to know that Jesus was a real person who lived in a real place at a real time. He emphasizes it. Peter actually does this over and over again. He draws attention to what the world despises. He does it in here in Acts 2. He does it again in Acts 3 and again in Acts 4 and again in Acts 10. Over and over again, he declares that it is Jesus of Nazareth who is the Savior. Well, he tells us that Jesus is attested to you by God. Now, what does that mean? Now, this doesn't mean that everyone took some kind of pop quiz and they took a test and they wrote down the right answers and they got a good grade and they were then attested. No, that's not what that means. To be attested here is a Greek word that means to be put on display. That Jesus was displayed before a watching world by God. But it means more than that. It also means to have evidence brought to prove something. And so Jesus is attested by God, not just that he's put on display, but he is proved to be whom he said he was by God. And then third and finally, this word means to be proclaimed. That God has proclaimed Jesus as Lord and Savior throughout all the world. That's what Peter is telling us. Jesus is attested by God. He is revealed by God. We know who Jesus is because God has revealed him to us. Now, how did God do that? Peter gives us a glimpse here using three words. Mighty works. <clears throat> wonders. And signs. Now, they all have kind of the same area of meaning. We might lump them together and call them all miracles. But Peter uses three distinct phrases here to give us an image of how God attested Jesus. First, he says that Christ was attested by mighty works. Now, what is a mighty work? These are powerful actions, supernatural actions. And you know what a supernatural action is, don't you? It's something that's above and beyond nature. It goes beyond natural processes. And what Peter is saying here is that our Lord Jesus Christ was attested by his mighty works, his works that were beyond nature. We've been looking at them in the Gospel of John. He turns water into wine. He walks on water. He feeds thousands from a little boy's lunch. Later we will see him raise a man from the dead. None of these things could be done naturally. 
They're all supernaturally, and they speak about God. The nature of these actions themselves point to God. Only God can do them. And these mighty actions show that God exists and that he has power. They're not random. Well, the second way that Peter describes this is with the word wonders. And the word wonders points to the result of such mighty works. Again, we've seen this over and over again in the Gospel of John. When Jesus performs a miracle, a mighty work, people around him wonder. How could this be? How did this happen? You were blind, now you can see. What happened? And even the explanation doesn't really satisfy. Well, this man put mud on my eyes and told me to wash and I could see. Well, what does that mean? That's not an ordinary reaction. And they are struck with wonder and awe. These works grab the attention of those who see them. They have to acknowledge that they're supernatural. The third way these works are described is as signs. And this has to do with the intention of the works. They point to something greater. The works themselves really are not important. But what they point to is, and we've seen this over and over again, Jesus turns water into wine to show that he is the Lord of creation. Jesus feeds the 5,000 to show that he is the bread of life. Jesus healed the blind man to show that he was the one to bring sinners out of spiritual darkness and into light. So each of these actions are a sign of a greater reality of who Jesus is. Jesus is revealed by God. And then there's another important aspect to these works. They're public. Throughout history, there have been those who have claimed special status, that they can do miracles, that they can heal people, that they can heal the sick, that they can, some have even claimed to bring back the dead. But do you ever notice that that never happens in public? You just have to take their word for it. I often wonder why if someone actually had a gift of healing, why they wouldn't spend 24 hours a day in the hospital healing people over and over and over again. But you see, they do things in the shadows. You couldn't see what they claimed. But not so Jesus. He was attested to by God in your midst, Peter says. It was obvious for everyone to see. When Peter fed the, the crowd, there were 20,000 people who saw it happen. When he turned water into wine, there was an entire crowd at a wedding. When he brought Lazarus back from the dead, it was obvious that Lazarus had been dead so long that he was starting to decay. There was no denying what Jesus did. These weren't rumors of Jesus' works. They were public and before the crowds. This is important because it's part of God's plan. God wanted Jesus to be seen. He wanted us to be without excuse. Remember that these were signs. They were not done to make the world a better place, but to show who Jesus is. 
Why? Because ultimately, only Jesus can save. Only Jesus can satisfy. And we need to be drawn away from ourselves and toward Jesus. So the second thing that Peter then shows us after Jesus is revealed, the Savior is revealed, is he shows us God's sovereignty in Christ's work of redemption. We might ask the question, why was Jesus revealed in this way, in a public way with mighty works? Why did Jesus carry out his ministry the way that he did? It surely was a blessing to many. He brought healing and hope. But we can only understand Jesus' work and ministry by its goal. And in the Gospels, we see Jesus' goal from himself. We see this emphasis. We're told that he set his face toward Jerusalem in Luke chapter 9. Over and over again, Jesus speaks about his hour, that his hour has not yet come, and that when his hour comes, this will happen. Everything that Jesus did led to the cross. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. And Peter tells us why. In verse 23 he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He says, The one who was attested by God, the one who did the mighty works, he was delivered up. Now this answers a question that we might have. If Jesus is so powerful, if Jesus is so mighty, how could he be taken and killed? How could the Pharisees and Herod and the Romans have overcome him and killed him? The answer is that Jesus was no victim. He was not helpless. He was handed over, delivered by God to this death. This was not a situation that was out of control. Peter is very clear here. God is in control. Have you had the occasion to watch video or a film of someone who's a victim of some crime? You watch and you see someone get attacked. They're hurt, they're beaten, they're robbed. And your heart goes out to them. And you look at them and you say, why did this have to happen to them? I wonder how I could help them. I wonder what we could do to get back at the people who did this to them. You see, you shouldn't have that reaction with Jesus. Because Jesus is not a poor victim. He willingly came to the cross. He's in complete control. Things don't happen to Jesus. They're according to the definite plan of God, Peter says. It was the will of God that brought Jesus to the cross. This was not some plan B. God is not making the best of a bad situation. It's not as if God was standing back and saying, well, I was hoping that the Jews would listen to my son. I was hoping that they would follow him and that the kingdom would come, but I guess since that didn't happen, I'll have to come up with a new plan. No. From before time began, the definite plan of God was that Jesus would die to make atonement for sin. Jesus' death on the cross was exactly what God had determined to do. Now, that doesn't make it easy for us to understand. Think about the disciples. 
when Jesus revealed the cross and his death to them, Peter, this same Peter, who just earlier on that occasion, in Matthew chapter 16, had said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then when Jesus tells them how he must suffer and die, Peter says, oh, never, Lord. That should never happen to you. And what was our Lord's response? Get behind me, Satan. Now, why? Is that because Peter had all of a sudden become wicked? I don't think so. It's because Peter was expressing the thought that Jesus should not go to the cross. And that was against the determined plan of God. And there is nothing that defines Satanism as well as rebelling against God's plan and will. That's what Peter was doing. Jesus was telling Peter and us that God's plan was our Lord's death. The language that Jesus used was that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And that was not the only occasion on which Jesus said that. Over and over again, as a part of his regular teaching, he taught about the cross. And Peter wants us to see that here. He says it was the definite plan of God. Now the word definite here means determined or appointed. It's not just that it will happen, it's that it's determined to happen. For example, this same word will be used in Acts chapter 10 to describe Jesus as the appointed judge of the living and the dead. Appointed is the same word here as definite. That God had determined before time began to appoint the Son, the judge of the living and the dead. In the same way, he had appointed Jesus to die. In Acts chapter 17, Paul speaks of the day of judgment that is appointed. And again, we see this is not something that has come up late, that is a, a, something that is chance or random. No, it is the determined will of God. Either God is in control or he's not. You can't pick and choose. God reveals himself as the sovereign king of the universe. And that means that you're not. And God knows exactly what he's doing. Even when it may look wrong or shaky to us. We have events that come into our life and we wonder how God is going to use them. We wonder what will come of them. But you can know this. You can trust God. He is worthy of your trust. No matter what happens in your life, you can trust and lean upon the living God. You can't imagine anything worse than the crucifixion of the Savior. And it was a part of God's definite plan to bring about glory and blessing and honor. So in your own life, are you willing to trust God when you lose a job? Are you willing to trust God when you get sick? Are you willing to trust God even in the grieving events of losing a loved one? You see, Peter tells us we have a God that we can trust. 
And Peter tells us not only that God is in control, but that he plans with a purpose in mind. And so he introduces a second description here. He says Jesus was delivered up not only according to the definite plan of God, but also the foreknowledge of God. Now, we should not think that God here is reacting to the world and the people in it. What does foreknowledge mean? Well, when we first hear the word, we might think it's knowing in advance, like a premonition. Like sometimes you get this feeling that it's going to rain. And sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. Because you know what? You can't tell the future. It's not like that, but more accurate. It's not knowing things before they're going to happen. That's not what the word means. God is before all creation. His plan comes before any action, anything, any creature. It's not as if God looked into the future and saw that the Pharisees would want Jesus killed and that Pilate would go along with it, and so God somehow jumped on board to make good out of it. No. What Peter is saying here is that God is the one who initiated the cross. God determined beforehand that Jesus would die. Turn with me, if you would, to Peter's first letter, 1 Peter. Same man, and he gives us, I think, a picture of what this foreknowledge means. In chapter 1, verse 18, we read, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown, same word, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. Peter is telling us that we were ransomed from our sinful ways and that the means of that rescue, that ransom, was the precious blood of Christ and that that was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This can't mean that God knew what Christ was going to do in advance and so therefore planned around it. No. The clear meaning here is that Christ's death was planned by God and was manifested in these last times. It's not surprising that Peter uses the same kind of language, right? Last times. In Acts 2, he says, these are the last days. In 1 Peter 1, he says, Jesus was manifested in these last days. This has always been the plan of God. It has always been God in control. Now, why is this important? Well, I think first and foremost, it shows us the love of God for sinners. That God purposed the salvation of sinners before the world began. That God was willing to go to every length to redeem for himself a people. It also shows us the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit for each other. That before the foundations of the world, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit purposed the redemption of a people. It is not as if Jesus had to be dragged to the cross 
kicking and screaming. It's not as if Jesus went to the cross hoping to manipulate the Father into forgiveness. No, they all together purposed the redemption of a people. And the love that they have for each other binds them together in this purpose. Before time began, God determined to save a people. The third thing it shows us is that Jesus is not just a victim. He is the willing sacrifice for our sin. He wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time. Events didn't get out of control. It didn't go faster than he thought it was going to go. No. Before he was born, before Israel existed, before the world was formed, Jesus knew he would die to atone for the sins of his people. And perhaps most comfortingly to us, this is important because it shows us the certainty of our salvation. God has been in charge from the beginning to the end. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus has saved you, if you have savingly believed on Jesus Christ, if you have received redemption from Christ, what makes you think you can mess it up? You, in the 70 or 80 years that you might have here, this redemption that God has planned and purposed and effectuated before time began. God's in charge. Trust Him. Follow Him. Well, Peter shows us a third thing in his sermon. After he shows us the Savior revealed, and after he shows us God's sovereignty in Jesus' sacrifice, he then shows us man's responsibility. You see, our sin is what made the cross necessary. Without sin, there would be no need for redemption. And so Peter shows us the darkness of our sin in the second half of verse 23. He says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But then he says, you crucified and killed him by the hands of of lawless men. Now, why does Peter do this? I think first, in case we are tempted to think that we don't need the cross, that we are okay. If we said to ourselves, you know, all we really need is better teaching. I just need a better plan for my life. I need a better structure to my life and everything will be fine. I'll follow the wisdom of Jesus and everything will turn out just great. And that's actually the way of most people today. People think they're fine. There may be others out there who are bad and need saving, but not me. Maybe that's you here today. Because you can look around and find, and find plenty of people who are worse than you are. It's easy to do. If you want to play the comparison game, you can easily come out on top. You just pick the set of people you want to compare yourself to. But Peter won't allow us that. He quickly turns from God's sovereignty and he says, You! You killed Jesus. God's sovereignty does not negate man's responsibility. 
Now, if you wonder, how is that reconciled? The answer is, we'll find out in glory. Because it's too much for us. As Paul says in Romans, your ways are beyond my ways, O Lord. But the Bible clearly teaches that God is completely sovereign. And let's take this specific. We don't need to be general and broad. That God is the one who delivered Jesus up for death. It's very clear. And then Peter says, you are responsible for killing him with wicked hands. How do those two things go together? It's a mystery of God. But I can tell you that people are not robots. People have free will of a sort. They're not compelled to do things by God. And Peter says that they freely chose to crucify the Lord of glory. Now before we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, our will is bound by our moral desires and likes. We only desire sin. We only desire to do wicked actions. That's what the Bible teaches us. But that doesn't mean we're automatons. It doesn't mean we're not responsible for our sin. The Bible clearly teaches that every time we sin, we bear the guilt of that sin. They took Jesus. They beat Jesus. They had a sham trial. They handed him over to the Romans. And they saw that he would not get mercy, but would be killed. How can this be? As I said, it's the great mystery of the universe. God is absolutely sovereign and in control. There is not one hair on your head that God did not put there. There is not one thing in your life that surprises God. And yet God does not force you to sin. He does not overwhelm your will. James puts it this way. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Peter clearly places the culpability for Jesus' death at the feet of those who killed him. He uses a moral term, wicked hands. Machines aren't wicked. Only people who make moral choices and who are responsible for them are wicked. Well, how can they then be wicked when they're carrying out what God had predetermined in his sovereign plan. How can they be responsible if it was God's determination? I think the answer can be found back in the story of Joseph. You remember Joseph? Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers because they had grown to hate him. And Joseph went from one suffering to another, he was sold into slavery, and then he was put into the jail, and then he was put into the pit. And then God raised him up to the throne of Egypt. And then after Jacob dies, his brothers are with Joseph, and their knees are buckling. Because they're, oh, we're sure now he's going to get us. Because he left us alone while dear old dad was alive. But oh no, he's going to take it out on us now. And Joseph says this to them. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Apply that to our text. Pilate, high priest, Pharisees, 
Sadducees, as for you, you meant evil against Jesus. But God meant it for good so that many could be alive. So that you and I could taste life, eternal life, because of God's purpose and plan. Man is not responsible for God's plan, but he is responsible for his own sin. And this is the wonder of the cross. God in Christ was reconciling himself to the world. He did this through the most wicked action ever in history. God conquered sin through the unjust, wicked murder of Jesus Christ. But it was more than a murder. It was a sacrifice. It was Jesus willingly going to his death, suffering what you deserve so that your sin could be atoned for. Next week, we'll look at the second part of Peter's sermon. The part where Peter tells us what happened afterwards. The wondrous, majestic story of Christ's resurrection from the dead. On Easter, we will gather to hear that marvelous story. We will declare to each other that He is risen. But you must remember that the hope of the resurrection begins here, at the cross. Without the death of Christ, Easter has no real meaning. God knows that. That's why the Father sent the Son, and the Son came to redeem sinners like you and me. Let's pray.